So, uh, you'll turn to uh, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, We'll be focusing today on verses 11 through 24. That's through the end of the chapter. It's worth reiterating, as I said last week, that the theme for all of chapter 3 is provided in those tail end verses of chapter 2, and I'll read those again. This is 1 John 2, 28 I'm reading now. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So we have twin comments here. That is of uh, what it means to abide in Christ, and uh, probably uh, uh, not a coincidence that the theme of the women's conference was abiding and guiding uh, with respect to Christ. And um, uh, we're going to hear that uh, uh, throughout our passage here. So abiding is one concept. And then this concept of uh, how does our abiding relate to the righteousness of God and to the, I might enlarge it to say the activities of God. And I think we'll see as we go through today that um, there is a, um, a synergy, you might say, between uh, our efforts, meager and, and feeble as they are, um, to abide in Christ and to uh, act righteously, um, God infuses that effort, um, even though we might think it's inadequate, uh, he infuses that effort with, um, with his, and uh, therefore we can have something that we can truly put our faith in. So, Verse 11 of 1 John 3, it says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This concept of loving one another has been introduced. Again, he, he's back and forth. Verse 10 says, By this is as evident that we are um, children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this concept of loving your brother as an evidence of the righteousness of God is the lead-in for verse 11. Again, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Um, We've mentioned a couple times, so it's it's worth repeating since John does this phrase, from the beginning. Uh, He's wanting to remind them that this message was from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from all the way back to the authentic gospel, as opposed to, you might say, newfangled teachings that he had been trying to uh, teach against. Um, this We've talked about this um, pre-Gnostic concepts and that sort of thing, and that's what he's kind of alluding to. Um, we've been teaching this from the beginning, from the very earliest messages of Christ, uh, this is the true thing going all the way back to the original. That's a concept that we should love one another. And now he's going to give us kind of teaching by the opposite. You know, comparisons can be a good teaching tool. And here he's going to take a negative example um, from all the way back to Genesis. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So if you want to get the story, 
turn to Genesis 4. There's two numbers you can remember, 11 and 4. So Genesis 4, uh, we're going to have reference to Cain. Hebrews 11, verse 4, is going to have a reference to Cain. And the last reference in the Bible to Cain is in Jude, verse 11. So if you remember 11 and 4, you'll, you'll, you'll get there if you remember the books. So Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of his firstborn flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord said, I'm sorry, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's interesting to note a couple things here. First of all, um, Cain was not condemned just because his sacrifice wasn't accepted. Uh, but he did get a warning that sin was crouching at his door, that there were going to be thoughts and feelings that were sinful that were going to be rising up and that he needed to, to, to push back on those. And what would he be pushing back on those with? He'd be pushing back on those with revelation that he had gotten from God. Um, at first glance, and I, I think this is, uh, uh, it's always been a little bit of an interesting riddle to me because just to read it from here, you think, yeah, it kind of sounds a little unfair. They both brought what they had produced. They both made an offering, Cain of the grain and Abel of the, of the flock. And some people say, well, you know, we know that the, you know, the, there's a blood sacrifice and that's better. And, but it seems to be a little bit better way to unpack this. And uh, I came across... Uh, an interpretation of this event by um, Dr. Wearsby as he looks at Hebrews chapter 11. And you can turn there if you want. It's just one verse. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Dr. Wiersbe elaborates on this and it says Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he offered it in faith. And that's a little tidbit we don't really get in Genesis. Um, but Wiersbe kind of extrapolates that. He says, well, how do we get faith? And you remember the verse that says, well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he says, well, God probably instructed Cain and Abel on what an acceptable sacrifice would look like. And then also, God was able to look at the heart. And the heart was, by faith, Abel offered uh, this sacrifice. 
So it, it just kind of gives you a little bit fuller picture. And um, just by final example, I'm not going to turn to it, but the, the verse in Jude 11 uh, is talking about um, all the false teachers and that they follow the way of Cain. And the point being is that at the time that John was writing, if you referred to Cain, you were basically uh, using him as, as a reference of all things evil. Because, of course, you know, he, went, he went rogue there by, by killing Abel and, and uh, was just a, an example of uh, sinfulness and of choosing uh, his own way rather than God's way. Uh, so that's this concept when, back to First John now, he says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Uh, so clearly not what we want to do. But look what it says. It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So this concept of jealousy leading to hatred and all that sort of stuff is, um, is pretty common. And one, one writer compared it to how the uh, Pharisees this it says, uh, people will attack you for being good because their own conscience convicts them, and they attack rather than deal with their own sins. Jealousy lay behind his hatred, not the jealousy which covers another's greatest gifts, but that which resents another's greatest righteousness. The envy which made the Jewish priests demand the death of Jesus. Jealousy Hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. Uh, so this concept that you can see something better in the other person, recognize a discrepancy in your own heart, but rather than deal with it, you attack the other person. We do see that, right? We see that pretty commonly. Um, and uh, here we have an admonition uh, not to do that. But he uses this as an example, verse 13 it's almost like he's saying, therefore, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Because it's almost like their own conscience convicts them. And he's, he's kind of not really saying it explicitly here, but implying the, the action of, of the conscience. And he's going to get into that more explicitly a little bit later. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life living in him. Uh, this just extrapolates uh, from there. Uh, we know in the Sermon of the Mount that Jesus uh, kind of leveled the playing field that says, you know, hate is basically the equivalent of murder. And uh, it was almost uh, like giving the full, letting people feel the full weight of the Old Testament law on them that, yes, murder is wrong, but, but so is hate. And uh, this, this heaviness of the law um, to really make them prepared to receive the gospel and the point that no one can, no one can satisfy the, the weight of the law because we've all hated at some point in time. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, it is, um, there are times you might think it would be understandable to hate someone, 
Um, but if, if the life of Christ is inside you, your response is going to be different. And as I read this passage, I remembered the uh, shooting at the uh, Emmanuel AME Church down in Charleston. Uh, back in 2015, and the response of some of the uh, family of the survivor—I mean, of the victims—was um, startling. And I'll read this from a from an article back then. It says only 48 hours after having lost mothers, sisters, sons, husbands, and wives, their loved ones appeared in court for Ruth's bond hearing. And what transpired was something that no one could have anticipated. It was the first time any of them would come face-to-face with the perpetrator of the hate crime as a judge was presiding over Ruth's bond hearing and invited them to make a statement, should they wish. First up was Nadine Collier, who lost her mother, Ethel Lance. She says, quote, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You think she was a Christian? How could a non-Christian say that? That's not, that's not from the world, right? That's, that's only from a heart that's been transformed who is able to perhaps take a careful look at what she had been forgiven of and was able to extend that. Nobody else uh, can do that. Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not live love rather in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, This comes kind of brings to mind uh, James, you know, uh, be ye doers of the word, not just hearers only. Uh, this is love in action. Uh, many commentators made the point that in our lives, we would rarely be called to actually sacrifice our life for someone else. Um, in fact, almost glibly, we might say, oh, I would die for you. And one person said, yeah, you might die for me, but could I hang out on your couch for a while till I get, till I get back on my feet? You know, that, that, you know, that and, and even made the point here that it says, James says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, like, like humanity, uh, or at least all of Christian brothers. Then he brings it on home. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother the individual in need, and then closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And uh, one commentator uh, put it and says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And, uh, you know, so I think um, it's true, right? I mean, there's some things that just ring true. Um, and, and at various points in times, you know, we probably all have struggled with that, that, um, you know, we come up against just through life, people that aren't all that lovable by whatever standard 
we have. And, um, and then what do we do with that? You know, do we see that need and act on it because it looks like uh, that that's the part that's important to read verse 18 again. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Um, you know, it's love in action. It, it just is. Um, another commentator says, John knows that our hearts control our hands. A closed heart will always result in closed hands and is evidence that your heart has never been opened by God's grace poured out in Jesus. Uh, can you be a stingy Christian? I don't know. It might be a clue. It might be a, a little uh, self-reflection in order. Um, just like uh, loving your brother, as I went through this, I said loving your brother is evidence of the work of God in you. Hate is a serious clue that things aren't right with you spiritually and you may not even be a Christian. And I think, you know, um, being confronted with a need that you could do something about and just ignoring it um, in a hard-hearted way um, could be a, a, a time for a little uh, spiritual inventory at the least. Verse 19. By this shall we know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. By the way, the verses I'm about to read uh, are, number one, very interesting to me. Number two, worthy of your reflection later in the week because no matter what comes out of my mouth next, it's not going to do them justice. <laughs> um, number three, they... Um, they um, they hit us where we are. They, they hit us at that, those internal conversations that, that we have. Um, you know, and we, we talk to ourselves more than anyone else. Um, and, and what we say to ourselves, you know, are we speaking truth to ourselves? All those things. So all of that is wrapped up in these verses. So just uh, bear with me. By this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, I'm sorry, whatever we ask from him, let me try again, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. Everybody get that? <laughs> let's, let's work through it. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Often in scripture, when they say, you know, by this we know, it's sometimes a lead in to, you know, what I'm fixing to say, to use our vernacular, is this, and then we would say it. And so... We would say, by this we shall know, often would refer to what comes next. Most commentators here say John is referring to what he just said. So if we go back and it says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So when we have a heart that's willing to flow toward meeting the needs of others, and in, in living out that in action, that's 
and evidence that we're in good standing with God. Now, you can't turn it around and say, if you do great things for the world, then therefore you become a child of God. No, that's not the way it works. But it is an evidence. If you have that flow toward others, it's, it's just an evidence that, that things are, are looking pretty good between you and the Lord. Conversely, you might say in verse 20, well, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So on the one hand, if you're doing the commandments, and he's going to clarify in a moment what those commandments are, but if you're doing those commandments, if you're meeting the needs of your brother, if you're loving your brother, you're not harboring hate against people, then that's going to, your heart's not going to condemn you. It's, your heart's going to feel good about that, and then you'll have some confidence that you're in right standing with God. But John wouldn't write this if he didn't know, hey, he has just put out a lot, and he knows none of us are going to meet that standard, and we're going to start to feel bad, right? So our hearts are going to condemn us sometime. Well, then what do we do with that? Well, let's keep going, and I'll circle back. Verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So it's like one big commandment, two parts. We believe in the son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. So we're now connecting all the way back to the end of chapter 2, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Uh, anytime you see Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit all land within a, a verse or two of each other, uh, that's a rich passage to, to dive into for people who would um, claim not to believe in the Trinity. Uh, this is definitely a, a Trinitarian passage. But um, So let's dig into this a little bit. Um, one commentator said about this passage, the suggestion seems to be that it may not be either an unusual or infrequent experience for the Christian's serene assurance to be disturbed. Sometimes the accusation of our conscience will be true accusations, and sometimes they'll be false. In either case, the inner voice is not to overcome us. We are rather to set our hearts at rest in his presence. That is, we must be able to do so in the sight of God. It is implied that we shall be able to do this only if we know that we belong in the truth. It is the mind's knowledge by which the heart's doubts may be silenced. So if you tell yourself the truths of Scripture, that truth will quiet the doubts of your heart. That's kind of what it's saying. We went through Jeremiah recently. Jeremiah 17 has a passage that often gets quoted about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> that doesn't sound great. But the, the 
solution to that is the very next verse. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So even though, and this is what this passage is talking about, even though our hearts may be ill at ease sometimes, God knows our heart. He knows our intentions. He knows, in fact, if you, I'll say this, not uncommonly I'll have somebody come in and they'll be very worried that they have Alzheimer's because they're being forgetful. This isn't 100% true, but I've rarely found someone who really has Alzheimer's who even cares. (laughs) It's true. A person with Alzheimer's, I mean, the family's bothered, right? But the person's like, it's fine. Here, it's almost like if you're bothered, if your conscience is bothering you that you're not responding enough to the poor and you're not loving your fellow man enough and you're not doing all those things, are those things that a non-Christian would even care about? No. No. So the very fact that that you're worried about those things in itself is somewhat of an evidence and that's where we can look to God who does know our heart and can see past all that craziness to authenticate the faith that's, that's in us. Uh, and some of this might sound like circular reason, but that's uh, just the way it is. Um, I did find someone who said it better. Uh, this is uh, commentator Boyce. Says, self-condemnation, and this, he's referring to that false conscious or, or the, the doubting conscience, you might say. Says, self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. It can be a matter of disposition. In other words, he says, some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. Is that true? For others, it may be a question of health. How a person feels inevitably affects how he thinks. Somebody's just feeling physically bad, uh, it's going to cloud their whole outlook. Absolutely. He says it may be due to a specific sin, right? Uh, Somebody's got an habitual sin, they're having a hard time dealing with it, they feel guilty about it, as the Holy Spirit would want them to feel guilty about it. Um, That's going to create some doubts, perhaps. He says, it may be due to circumstances. I think that's true. I mean, in circumstances, it could be just the stress of life, which for some people can weigh very heavily. I think it could be old circumstances too. Um, uh, Emotional trauma from the past, perhaps physical trauma, you know, uh, uh, abuse. You know, all those things can, can kind of cause enough uh, impact on the heart to make you... Um, maybe not trust it reliably. He says, how is it the believer to deal with such doubt? Goes on to say, we know that the Bible teaches that it is possible to be saved and yet have doubts and become discouraged. In such instances, we would be wise to take the threefold test we have seen in 1 John. Belief, do I believe rightly about Jesus? 
obedience? Am I obeying God as I ought? And is my love for others what it should be? Several commentators quoted 1 Corinthians 4, um, which is not a chapter that I go to for reference a lot. But there Paul says, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In other words, your accusations of being to me don't really amount to much, um, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And he says, for I'm not aware of anything about myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. In other words, just because I don't think anything's wrong with me, that doesn't mean that nothing's wrong with me, right? He says, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, our brains can be a little confusing in there, right? We can think we have problems when we maybe don't have them to the degree that we think we do, like John, 1 John is talking about. Or to use Paul's example, we may think we're fine, when maybe God thinks that we're not all that fine. And Paul's saying, you know, it's all going to work out. God's going to be the ultimate judge. And I think the, the kind of the hidden message here is that God's probably going to be more gracious to us than we would be to ourselves. That's kind of the, one of the big idea here. And then finally, I guess not finally, uh, but next I should say, Uh, I'll quote, it says, John addresses the problem of Christian conscience here, that inner voice, a.k.a. the heart, that accuses one of failing to live up to God's expectations. Ever fail to to live up to God's expectations? Despite believing correctly about Jesus Christ, and even while striving to live out the gospel in our relationships, listen to this, Every Christian still has a conscience that reminds us of our failed intentions, our laziness that has motivated sins of omission, the unkindness we've done to others in a rash or impatient moment. The apostle has been laying out a tall order of what it means to love one another, but he does not wish to lay a guilt trip on his readers by suggesting that God requires some unattainable, perfect obedience for good standing with him. Despite the difficulties in the passage, the main point is that the path to assurance in times of self-doubt is to trust in God. Verse 22, which is really the second half of the sentence that begins in 21, so I'll start there. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God in whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and we do what is pleasing to him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Remember when the Pharisees were confronting Jesus, he basically said the same thing. He says, this is Matthew 22, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, this is kind of funny, right? The Pharisees are saying, you know, the Sadducees took a swing at this and they whiffed. 
but we've got this. We've got the, we've got the question that's going to trip him up. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, when he says verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the, his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Um, you see that reflected there. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In the uh, conference, um, their theme passage was John 15, where it's all about abiding in Christ and uh, the the metaphor of uh, being grafted in the vine and, and that sort of thing. And And we've mentioned before that the the concepts that are uh, introduced in 1 John are really, you know, expanded and, and elaborated on in the Gospel of John. And I think it's pretty easy to recognize that these concepts of what does it mean to abide in uh, Christ, what does it mean for, um, what does that look like? What is a person who's abiding in Christ, what, what do they act like? Well, they're going to start to act like the vine. Right? They're going to start to be righteous, um, do righteous things. And, um, and, and you can very easily see, if you, if you read this passage again and then read John 15 and then come back and read this passage again, you'll see not only are they, is it easy to believe they're written by the same person, but you can see that, um, that they really uh, uh, partner well together and, and they, they really... Um, come from the same concept that he's really trying to, to make real to us. Um, I'll close uh, by maybe one more quote. The apostle knows that his readers need to quiet their hearts in order to continue in their faith in Christ and in their love for others. For a heart that constantly accuses us of disappointing God will erode our resolve to love and will keep us from enjoying our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Feelings of inadequacy or failure will impede our prayer life by making us shy away from God. John's remedy for quieting a restless heart is surprisingly simple to state, but possibly difficult to achieve. Trust God, who knows all things and knows us better than we know ourselves. Trust God's regenerative power working within Trust God's knowledge of how his spirit has transformed you and continues to do so throughout your life, even when your own spirit grows weak. Don't turn away from faith in Christ or from loving others. Remain in him. So, loving one another, abiding in Christ, meeting the needs of your brother, all those things get pulled in there together. And we see how John keeps revisiting these topics over and over. And uh, he'll and he'll do it some more. Uh, so that's uh, that's John, First John rather, uh, chapter three. Uh, any comments?
course, didn't we make a comment on not necessarily that. Um, something that has made national attention in the last uh, week or so is the <clears throat> revival that has broken out at Ashbury University in Kentucky. And the elements of that are <clears throat> repentance, uh, confession, repentance, and loving one another. And it's, uh, it's taken on, you can just uh, <clears throat> go to your friend Google and you can find out a, a whole lot about, uh, about uh, the, what's going on there. We have a couple of uh, covenant connections. Uh, that's uh, Kent Jewel Stomping Ground in Kentucky. <clears throat> and we have a young lady uh, from our congregation a few years ago. Uh, her dad and folks are still with us, David. I'm not sure if I can pronounce his name correctly. Carista? Uh, <clears throat> his, his daughter is a student there. And so uh, we're getting firsthand feedback from the chapel, and it's, it's growing, it's growing uh, uh, wide. But it's the same thing that Arch just talked about in First John, about <clears throat> repentance and confession and loving one another. Um, it's a bright spot in, in all the news that we have. Uh, so pray for those students. And they're coming from the University of Kentucky. They're coming from other places uh, just to, uh, uh, to witness it and be a part of it. So let's pray for those kids. And, uh, and uh, I encourage you to look it up. Go ahead, baby. <clears throat> All right. Thanks, Tim. Uh, anybody else? I was going to ask, I forgot. Is this the first John for, for, the, for the writing of John? John, which, which one did you write? We, we think that 1 John, the, uh, John, the epistles of John, came before the Gospel of John. If you didn't hear, he was saying that his uh, his grandmother, um, a very godly woman, yet still struggled with doubt about her faith. But uh, he could tell from uh, how how read and marked up uh, the Gospel of John and her Bible was that that she knew she turned there for assurance. So I think that's great. Particularly these epistles, first John, and the, all the and the epistles. Are all right, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you know our hearts better than we do, that we can only achieve the things that we need to achieve for you by abiding in you. And we pray that you would um, uh, continue to uh, uh, nourish us and sustain us, um, lead us and continue to work on us, uh, pruning us as you need to, uh, to become uh, fruitful members of that vine, which is Jesus, and in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.